The whole world has changed and the church is asleep. This is Mission Shift, a podcast that shares ideas about reaching out to the immigrant cultures in America today. When most people think of missions, they immediately think of somewhere overseas. Yet missions today could mean the neighbor next door. Our conversation today is with Rollin Wells, a historian, pastor, and communicator who has spent most of his life teaching people how the gospel can impact all people and cultures. Thanks for joining us today. Pastor Wells, last time you laid out a roadmap of where immigration had started from, and it was very interesting. And, and where you left off, you were talking about health care and some of the issues that were involved, cheap labor and so forth. But in this section, we're going to talk a little bit more about immigration, and it, it comes out of Europe, or at least Europe's immigration issues have an effect on us. What do you mean? There have been migrations of people throughout all of history, wave after wave, and we've talked a little bit about that elsewhere here. But right now, the focus in the world's eyes is on this big march of peoples from the Middle East into Europe. Now, that's quieting down, but still there are millions of displaced people. And you've got millions of people in refugee camps in Turkey. You've got people in camps in Greece. You've got millions of people in, in Jordan and an amazing time right now of so many people displaced. And so that really, in the last year or so, has been very visible to us. Now, that will ultimately resolve somehow, but still there are, there are millions of new Europeans who are not German, who are not French, who are not Swedish. They're going to keep their identities. Their identities are, first of all, they're Muslim, and they've kept a separate identity, and they see themselves very desirably to be different from what they see as the Christian population, even if it may be a very nominally Christian population in some places. So our focus is on that right now. It's causing a great deal of discomfort. We see the rise of the right across Europe right now. Now that may shift as well, but this is just part of the migration that's from everywhere to every place else. People are just looking for jobs. So, you know, Chinese all over South America Indian people from India, that kind of Indian people going everywhere and Americans going everywhere. It's just a sign of the times anybody can go anyplace else. So now we're at this point where we've had this expansion, expansion of the American population, this expansion in Europe with immigration, and a lot of people are uncomfortable. Now with the explosion coming out of Syria and this marching of several million immigrants into Europe, that's been mind-blowing. It's been absolutely mind-blowing. Germany, especially with their history, wanted to be welcoming. They didn't want to be racist and so on. But the number of people, the unending millions of people that were marching into those countries, it was a stretch. It stretched that identity. And what I think we're seeing all over in all these different movements at the same time is the fact that a culture, okay, like it turned outwards in the 60s, there's a time when a culture needs to turn inwards. The question will be, will Trump be a Nixon or will Trump be a Reagan? America wasn't ready yet to turn inward with Nixon, but the anxiety was there. And now we've got anxiety. Will it become greater? I don't know. 
But as far as understanding the migration thing, this migration wave with the wars we've got going on, with the difference between North and South in wealth, until we see the kind of employment the kind of change that's happened in India and China and before that South Korea and Taiwan and Japan after the war as they have moved from being agrarian 19th century economies into modern manufacturing economies. Again, cheap labor, cheap labor, cheap labor. But that has led to the development of all those countries. China today, we were over there two years ago and I expected to see seas of bicycles. All my life I've seen these pictures of Chinese, thousands of Chinese riding bicycles. A bicycle today in Beijing is a fairly uncommon thing. It's all cars. They're not going anywhere. The air is terribly polluted. They're stuck in tremendous traffic jams, but everybody has to have a car. They can only drive it six days a week, but everybody has to have a car. And if they don't have a car, they have an electric motorbike and very few bicycles. Plus, there's pretty good mass transit, subways and so forth. But they've changed. They've gone through a tremendous change in the last 20 years. So that's the milieu in which all this stuff for mission happens. That's what's happening in America. And as we see all these attitudes towards immigrants happening and we turn inward and turn outward and turn inward and turn outward over the whole history of America, we're at a time now where we're feeling a great deal of unease. We're probably getting ready to turn inward, but we've got right now strong left, strong right, and strong left and strong right are at each other's throats. They can't agree that water is good to drink, <laughs> you know, or that the, the existence of air. Everybody's at everybody's throat. So with this identity crisis and this whole issue as you've developed this historical picture for us, what does this mean for the church? I mean, we've got to come back to the the church bringing clarity to some of it. What does this mean for the church? Typically, revival happens in the midst of hard times, in the midst of chaos midst of pain. People turn towards the important questions in life. Now, having said that, the American church today is probably in its worst shape that it's been since the uh, late 1600s. When the Puritans came over here in the 1600s, they believed that everybody should have a conversion experience, including their own children who were immersed in scripture from the day they were born. And so the Puritans developed something called the Halfway's Covenant. Their children could not point to a conversion point. Now, these were kids that were dealing with the Bible for hours and hours every day, and they were spending all day Sundays in church, and and they were there in the midst of this, what they saw as a Christian community and a a Christian uh, New Jerusalem. But then their kids, who had been raised in faith from the time they were little tiny kids, didn't have conversion experiences. So rather than understand that they were nurturing children that they'd been growing and that second generation faith, instead they wouldn't let them have communion. It was called the Halfway's Covenant. In two generations, there was no faith in New England. But in the next generation came the First Great Awakening. Now, America, there's a lot of things. People like their weekend. We have this general religiosity. There's a lot of people who see themselves as believers, but they really don't want to take the time or spend the money to become part of church. The women have been the great drivers to move their families towards church and faith. The growth of the megachurches, because the moms don't have to be carrying on all this responsibility of teaching Sunday school and endless volunteering, because they're dog tired. They're trying to run a household and they're trying to work 40, 50 hours a week. And the family wants the boat. They want to spend the time at the cabin. There's little league and hockey on Sunday morning. A lot of good things. The church in the rural areas. I think girls' athletics are, are incredible. I think they're wonderful. I think they're, we're going to have a generation of women who are stronger and no teamwork. It'll be a wonderful thing. But in the rural areas, it's almost impossible to run a church youth group because almost every night of the week is taken up by some kind of sports. And if you've got one gymnasium, 
gymnasium and the high school. Then you've got to have girls A squad one night and B squad another night. And then you've got boys A squad and B squad. And then the kids have to work. And 30 years ago, it was almost impossible to find a time for kids to get together in a rural church. And at that point, Wednesday nights were the church night. Well, then you had confirmation, you had other church meetings. And today, the the rural church is collapsing, as is the urban church. I mean, the suburban church. 4% of 20-somethings are attending church on any given Sunday. So we're seeing the tremendous collapse. We didn't nurture the faith of our kids. There's a lot of reasons for it. But at the time now that we have all these immigrants and all this opportunity for reaching out to the immigrants around us, and now you get another thing that, that culture and society is saying that uh, Christians are bigoted and they're all Republicans and they're all uh, mean. That's the worst thing you can possibly be in today's generation. All of a sudden, because of the political identification between evangelicals and the far right, and the identification between Trump and evangelicals is a real hard connection to make. I'm not saying that he doesn't have potential and I'm not going to get into the political thing, but I'm just saying, considering that eight years ago, 12 years ago, 16 years ago, we were talking about so much of that character matters, character counts. It's a bizarre world we live in. It's a very strange time. And the church... We have marketed the megachurch where, you know, come and we'll give you a little bit of religion and a little bit of entertainment. You don't have to sing any songs. You don't have to serve on any committees. You don't have to be involved in anything. You don't have to, you know, you can just come and feel good and you can have your 12 minutes of inspiration and then go home. And we'll give you a health club and we'll give you daycare and whiter whites and shinier floors. It's been marketing. So then you throw into the mix of all of this the immigration issue where we as the church are asked to reach out to some of these folks that are moving into our neighborhoods and we have no clue whatsoever. In fact, we just ignore the situation for the most part. I mean, even the schools, even in second grade, kids kind of stick to their own kind for the most part. I mean, there are times when, you know, a little white kid and a little Latino kid or a little monk kid will come together and play. But even even in second grade, kids tend to stay with their own people group, their own language group, their own cultural group. And our churches, our, our churches are just as much the same way. Our churches are people that are about the same socioeconomic level. You've got blue-collar churches, you've got white-collar churches, you've got so many ethnic congregations that have come in and are growing, but typically staying in their own language as a safe place where I can go and be comfortable with people who are just like me. I attend my son's church from time to time, and that church has young families. They're all the same age. They have the same economic, as you're saying. But is that healthy? Is that good? Is that good for challenging that particular age cycle group just to stay in their own dynamics? In other words, how do we get the church out of its paradigm of being the same and thinking about the call that the church has upon it, which is to go into all the world, which now means your own neighborhood? Just like culture moves in and out, and we have to know who we are, and we have to go expand beyond that. I know how, how important it was when I was in my 20s to have Christian friends. We had a Bible study Monday night put on by a couple of folks that were maybe 30 years older than us. They moved all the furniture out of the living room every week, and they had all these kids sitting around with guitars and and the relationships and the Bible studies and that that affirmation and that commonality was extremely important. Youth groups and churches and so on were, you know, were a big deal in the 70s and even into the 80s. Those were important times. I lived through the guitar wars, you know, a guitar in church. Want to see my scars? Those were times of change and that was, an, that was a generational marker and that was important. But at the same time, 
it was so important to sit down with people who were older than me and learn about life, learn about the next stage in life, learn about how do you live as a, a married person, how do you raise kids. In the history of Christianity, the church has been multi-generational. In most cultures, most times, it was you know pretty much a pretty homogenous thing. If you're in France or Germany or even in America, your denomination was probably tied to something of, of the culture you, and language you came from. But it was multi-generational. I think for 20-somethings, get-togethers are a really good deal. But what does a 20-something know about life? 20-somethings desperately need 70 and 80-somethings that have been through all this, who have been through lots of change, who have seen the world fall apart a couple of times. Um, they need to be learning about how to stay married. They need the, the village. They need the tribe. They need the clan. And I think all of those things are important. But when everybody's part of the same clan, you, you lose the tribe. You lose the, the larger picture. You lose the larger belonging. Well, as you're talking about the generational differences and how that can add to the development of a healthy spiritual and emotional outlook in life, is that same idea true for cultural differences? Is it true for us to be out of our clan, so to speak, in our evangelical clan and become more involved in ethnicities in their culture? And I know there's been attempts at doing that, but it's seems so contrived and unnatural. How do you propose that churches do that on an ongoing learning basis? Well, just like 20-somethings need 80-somethings, and 80-somethings need 20-somethings, they need their energy, they need their idealism, they need their spark, they need to be encouraged to think outside the box. When I go to my Bible, I look at Revelations 21, I look through the, the end of the book of Revelation, I look at the beginning of the church in Acts 13, I see a multicultural church. I see a church of many tribes and tongues and nations. Acts 13, when Paul comes together with Barnabas and all these other people who are from different backgrounds, Menaeus, Simon, who's called Niger, they're from all over the Mediterranean. They could all speak Greek, but they were from many different varied cultures. Now, it's hard. It takes work. We want fast, fast pain relief. We want instant mashed potatoes. If we eat mashed potatoes, even, we would much rather go to fast foods. We want everything now. We don't want it hard. We don't want to make a big investment. We want to play on the boat. We want to have fun with our family. And our job is killing us, especially the parents in the minivan years. And yet those are the critical times of energy. Those are the, the people that make the church the healthy church. And yet they're not there. The 30 and 40-somethings simply aren't in the church for a lot of different reasons. But for people to hear the call to become part of a multicultural church or to be involved in multicultural experiences. Jin Kim, our friend, the pastor here of a multicultural church in the Twin Cities, quite often will remind people in the congregation, if you come here and you're here for a couple, two or three weeks, somebody's going to offend you. Because of all these cultures and us trying to understand with each other our meaning by what we are saying and doing, somebody's going to do something that in your culture is going to offend you. Be ready for it and laugh at it and embrace it because we're here and we're. it's going to take us a while to become the kingdom of God. But we're going to love each other and we're going to blow past it because the, the results of it are so much greater. Well, I think that's the key of all of this is that we've lost sight of the kingdom of God and what that is. And perhaps we need education to come back to that. Now, I know that you have a program, and I'm not sure if you call it a program. It's sort of a, a mindset 
mind shift. It's a heart shift. It's called mission shift because the mission, as we always think of missionaries, is something over there. It's going out. But really, mission shift is shifting from over there to right here. Tell us about mission shift and how does it accomplish some of the things we've been talking about? Well, mission shift's purpose is to is to teach Christians to build and lead cross-cultural ministries. So it's about teaching some leadership. It's about opening people's eyes. It's about learning about culture. It's about teaching people to deal with the problems that go along with it. And we've been about this now for over 20 years. And the basic thing is a year-long, one-night-a-week class, three hours, using the leaders of the city to teach the city to the people of the city. And teaching people to understand other cultures, teaching people to look for openings with immigrants, whether they're brand new immigrants or whether they been here for six months or a year or two years or five years, people that come here, especially in the first year or two, have tremendous needs. And everybody has something they can give away without cost that somebody else desperately needs. And to link that up in order to create relationships, one of the greatest needs for immigrants is to have a friend, just somebody who knows their name, somebody that invites them to their house, to build a relationship. And sometimes it may be a need, but it might be the need of how to buy a chicken at Cub might be how to speak English, might be the dairy farms in western Wisconsin. It might be, uh, uh, think what a church could do if they offered simple English classes to these thousands of Latinos that come up to work on the dairy farm to understand the terms of a milking machine, understand in Spanish, maybe have education of how all this stuff works, and then teach the English words that would be needed. It would cost nothing. People could speak enough Spanish to do that. And they could teach the English terms of you know, milking machines. And it's been a long time since I ran a milking machine, but it's uh, I did help out in the dairy farms on my internship many years ago. Everybody's got something they can give away without cost that somebody else desperately needs. When you're dealing with Somalis who have lived in, in camps in the desert for a generation, there's a lot of stuff that they've just never seen before. So we live at a time where we can change the future of the American culture, the American church simply by learning and opening up our hearts. And it doesn't take big programs. It doesn't take money. It doesn't take a pastor to run it. It just takes an opening up of our eyes. So Mission Shift, if someone was interested, could go online and they could they could see a couple of videos, a couple of the courses actually, on video online. Is that correct? We have a six-video course for congregations for sale. A couple of those videos are for free on the uh, the introductory one, the one that talks about refugees. On the web, they're there and uh, good discussion starters, especially in the middle of the stuff we've got going on today about uh, migrants. Those two, I think, are just outstanding as far as what they say to us in this uh, current situation. And then congregations can use those, uh, can use the video series. There's a free written curriculum that's also embedded on the discs. Hundreds of those have gone out around the upper Midwest and across the country. And then we've got the year-long course is really cheap. It's $200 a semester or whatever you can afford, and that starts every fall. It's in downtown Minneapolis, free parking, and it's a fun course, very experiential, very limited amount of homework. And then uh, we also, on the same model, we are in connection with a couple of Christian universities in town, and we have an entire urban studies major that young people can take 
that teaches them to be functioning cross-culturally and to understand how a 501c3 or a corporation uh, functions, how they can understand how the city works, how immigrants work, and they come out uh, city-savvy, people-savvy, culturally-savvy, and they go to work in churches, mission, great pre-seminary degree, but also they go out into business. They go out into going into 501c3 nonprofits, and they're ready to hit the ground. They're ready to go. So you headquarter out of Minneapolis-St. Paul, and what I hear you saying is that in the local community, there are lots of things, courses they can take on an in-class, face-to-face kind of professor-student kind of relationship. But then for people on the outside of the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, you do have these videos that are available for purchase. So where does all this begin? You have a website address where people can really kind of go through and peruse the various ways that Mission Shift addresses the issues that we've been talking about today. Yeah, the Mission Shift website is www.missionshift, all one word, missionshift.org. And that'll bring you to our stuff. And there's videos. There's it explains our course. You can order the video. You can order it on Amazon as well, the video series. The podcast is going up now. This is going to be new, and we'll be continuing to update this and making this available, I would hope, every week or two and coming up with a, a way of explaining this stuff. What we started out to do 22 years ago was to create a new model for training people to work cross-culturally, a new way, a new model, a new paradigm, not only for the urban church, but for every church. Every church in America has immigrants under the shadow of its steeple. We originally called our ministry the School of Urban Ministry, and we'd go out to first-ring suburbs that were 65% people of color, and most of them immigrants, and say, well, come and get some training. And they'd say, yeah, but we're not urban, we're suburban. We don't have alleys. Is that the definition of urban with I, alleys? Apparently, <laughs> apparently. And okay. so would say, yeah, but you've got, in your suburb, you have tens of thousands of people who are here who are immigrants, and the church was completely clueless, didn't know where to start, didn't know how to understand their neighborhood. So rather than try to explain why suburban people needed urban ministry, we just changed the name to Mission Shift about uh, six, seven years ago, and... Uh, I think that explains things, that the mission has shifted. And we need to be aware of that. And it doesn't mean we have to quit our day jobs. It doesn't mean a 40-hour-a-week commitment. It's talking about a shift where the person in the pew now sees themselves as a frontline missionary. Give us your website address one more time. It's www.missionshift.org, missionshift.org. Org, and come and see what we're doing. And the uh, the college program is U4C, the Urban Cross-Cultural College Consortium, but the kids who they're texting understand it right away, U4C, what God is up to. So it's U, the letter U, the number four, and the letter C.org, U4C. And that's, uh, that's an exciting program, a lot of fun, and uh, kids are getting jobs. Thanks for joining us today for this podcast. If you liked what you heard, please join us again next time. You can go to our website at missionshift.org for more information. While you're online, you can sign up for the RSS feed that will deliver a link to your email inbox so you'll never miss an episode. That address again is missionshift.org.